Good morning. Last week, we uh, were looking at the book of Deuteronomy, and that's kind of where we're going today. I'm just going to give you fair warning. Last week was kind of a dark chapter. Uh, the sermon was quite heavy. Uh, we ended up by having our application, which is don't kadesh it, in other words, don't rebel against God. Uh, God has time, and the desert has sand. Um, I wish I could tell you in all joyfulness that chapter 2 is going to be much lighter. It isn't. Um, so I'm going to try to dance through this without getting too graphic, but it is, uh, it is one of those chapters, though, that I felt like I couldn't skip over as Doug Fern is preaching on the other campuses and we were talking about it. Uh, just like, do we avoid even going here because it is uh, something in the realm of apologetics and our understanding of who God is and theology proper and so forth that causes a lot of people to uh, take a second glance at Christianity as a belief system and some has just uh, decided that they don't want anything to do with it because they don't understand it. So today we're going to look at that and I'm going to try to hopefully come up with some good uh, response to that, trying to understand that. So we're in chapter two, as I said, of the book of Deuteronomy. And last week, uh, we got right up through this chapter. We talked about the Israelites sending out a recon team, 12 spies into the promised land, trying to figure out, um, by the way, is there signs that say you can't sit in the first three rows? Hmm. If, if you're at home, I hope you move closer to the, the computer screen or something. But anyway, uh, they came back and they gave a negative report. They said that the land was full of giants and huge cities with fortified walls and that we have no business trying to go there. In fact, it got so bad uh, that they decided that uh, as a people that they would listen to this false report and they would want to go back to Egypt. And they got to the point where they picked up stones and they were going to kill Moses and Aaron, uh, God's representatives. And then all of a sudden, God makes that appearance coming out from the tabernacle, from the tent of meeting. And uh, in his anger, uh, his wrath, he was going to evaporate everyone. And Moses pleads with them, and finally uh, God relents of that plan, but says these ten spies of the twelve, ten gave a bad report, two gave a good report, Joshua and Caleb, but he said those ten, they're going to be dead. And they did die with a God-inflicted pestilence. And the rest, you're going to spend 40 years wandering through the wilderness, 40 years until this whole generation has died. Now we're to the point in this sermon, remember we're in the middle of the first sermon in the book of Deuteronomy in which Moses is recounting the history. Uh, this is going to end up being sort of an encouragement sermon at one point uh, for the children of Israel, but he does have to go back through some of the history. And now that they've come around and God had said last week, okay, we're done wandering, we're going to get ready to launch, uh, we get into chapter 2. So... Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 together in our Bible. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. 
Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. Command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will not be afraid of you. So be very careful. When God tells you to be careful, that's a good idea to listen. Do not contend with them. Do not go to war with them. Do not argue with them. For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I have given this land of Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you and all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Elath and Eslan Geber. So what we're going to see here in this opening part of this chapter, and we're just starting with this opening section, is there's going to be three different nations in view here. We have the Edomites, we're going to have the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And God is going to give pretty much the same command to all three of them as the children of Israel go by their front door. If you look at a map, um, like in the back of your Bible, and I did bring one this morning, uh, Edom is right at north of Kadesh Barnea. Uh, Edom will continue to play a significant role uh, throughout the Old Testament, at first uh, recognized as brothers uh, to the Israelites, but eventually they also will join in with other nations to war against Israel, but not for some many years yet. Uh, in fact, in the Minor Prophets, towards the end of the Old Testament, we get into the book of Obadiah, who his whole point is to tell the Edomites that God has had enough with them as well. So who are these Edomites? Let's just spend a second talking about them. Um, God has uh, already promised protection to these people. They're actually descendants of Esau. If we look back to Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, uh, we have the story of uh, just ending of Jacob and Esau. Uh, we have, first of all, the parents, Isaac the dad, Rebekah the mom, and they've had twins, uh, Esau and Jacob, and that in and of itself was a huge story. And then as they got older, uh, Jacob, the younger brother, uh, decides to kind of uh, push his older brother to give up his birthright. His brother was an outdoorsman, a hunter, um, big man, and he came in one day famished, so hungry, over-the-top hungry, and he decided that he would rather have a bowl of uh, porridge, of red soup, than keep his birthright. And Jacob finagled that out of him, and uh, other situations happened. Eventually, uh, Jacob and his mother uh, again finagled the dad, Isaac, into blessing the younger brother rather than the older brother, and so forth. So, in throughout the scriptures, and especially the book of Genesis, Esau comes out on the sad side of almost all these stories. You can understand then why he would be so angry with his brother. There is that classic meeting between the two brothers' families, remember, uh, as Jacob and his 12 sons are traveling through the, the wilderness and the, the land, and they get close to uh, Esau's land, 
And Jacob starts sending forth gifts for Esau while he stays way in the back. Smart man. And his, you know, trying to just make peace. And it seems like that works, right? Well, part of the plan in Genesis was to give Esau and his descendants their own land. He may have given up his birthright. He may have not gotten the blessing, but God is not done with him. And because he's in the family of the covenant, he is going to get his own places. So uh, that doesn't mean he was a righteous man. Again, I'm going to look in Genesis 36 here, and I'll just quickly read this section here, which is a commentary on just what kind of man Esau was. I'm going to look at verse 1 through 3. Uh, it says, these are the generations of Esau. We see all that. And it mentions his wives. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Now this is against God's law, right? Uh, the Israelites were supposed to only marry Israelites to keep the bloodline uh, truly pure. But Esau went ahead and married others. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and so forth. And if you read through that, he even marries one of the daughters of Ishmael. Then it talks about the children that they bore and so forth. And then uh, if you just keep reading through that, you'll notice that uh, they are able to have quite a large uh, family group. The, the problem comes, and there's a telltale uh, verse in there that says the Esau marrying these Hittite women and foreigners caused great consternation in the home. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 16 and 17, in the list of... Uh, heroes of the faith, and we've moved on, and we're talking about discipline and so forth, it mentions in there, do not be full of sexual immorality like Esau. Uh, I think that's the point. Uh, at one point, Esau is married these wives that I just mentioned, and then in another listing, there's a whole other group of wives that he marries. He takes multiple wives to himself, and even though he's part of the covenant family, and God doesn't completely cut him off, he still is not being obedient to the Lord. So that was many years ago. And so while the children of Israel were going through all their travails, living in Egypt for 400 years and uh, enjoying the uh, regency of Joseph as prime minister and so forth, uh, Esau and his family were living just south of the promised land. And now that they're ready to start their march, it would have been so short for them to just go straight through Edom and right into the heart of Canaan, God says, don't do that. We're going to respect them. And so he says, I want you instead to go around. And he says, don't, this is an emphatic sentence, do not step so much as the sole of your foot on their land. I will not bless it if you do. So it seems strange that God would care so much about these people. But I think the whole point here is that God is a protector and God provides. God is a protector, and God provides. He's protecting people, and he's showing the Israelites that he is the one who's going to give them marching orders. He's the one that is going to take care of the situation. And then he does the same thing in verses 8 through 9 <clears throat> in the same chapter uh, with the Moabites. And we turned, and we went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab, and the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle. 
For I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Uh, again, the Moabites, and then later with the Ammonites, most of us know that story. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed. Their unrighteousness has been caught the attention of God, and he has told them uh, to Abraham that he is going to just wipe them out. It's a classic tale. Even people that don't know Scripture use the buzzwords of Sodom and Gomorrah to mean uh, holy hell coming down upon a people, right? Uh, raining fire and brimstone. And the whole story of Lot escaping with his daughters in the nick of time and his wife turning to look against God's orders, against his angel's orders actually, and turning into a pillar of salt, leaving Lot alone with two daughters in a cave and they do wickedness with their father, right? Moabites, Ammonites, descendants of Lot, still in the covenant family. They didn't make that covenant, but they are considered to be within God's protection and his provision. And so God tells Moses and the children of Israel, I don't want you to touch them as well. Don't touch the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and don't touch the Moabites. Uh, the descendants of Lot. Do not harass them, it says, or contend, again, the same verb. Do not contend with them in battle because I'm not going to give you their land. And the children listen to this. It's the same things. And then there's a parenthetical thought starting in verse 10, which seems like a strange thing to say since there is no punctuation in the original Hebrew, but it's obviously something that Moses felt uh, should be included for some additional knowledge of what's happening here. In verse 10, it says, The Amin formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about them a little bit. They were giants, and when the spies came back, uh, they actually give those giants, those large people, a little bit more power and stature than they deserved and called them Nephilim. But he says, no, like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amin. The Horites also lived in Seir, formerly, but the people of Esau disposed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. That's the thought. And so God is again saying, I am the God of provision and protection. I provide to my people. I protect my people. So he's letting Moses and the children of Israel know that as they come into the land, they not only can't conquer Edom and they can't conquer Moab, but he's saying, I already let them into this land. Uh, they have a history with me. And because I was with them, they were able to chase out the Canaanite tribes that were there previously to them, despite the fact that they were tribes of superior build and strength. This would be kind of like saying, Rhode Island chased out, you know, all the people of Montana. I mean, this little teeny state came in and took them over. Well, that's what happened here. And it's, uh, everybody who heard the story uh, that the Horites were chased off understood that God had blessed them. This was legendary. And Moses is just saying, consider this. Just as an extra thought, don't, don't just understand that God says you can't set so much as a foot sole there. But understand that God has already been doing a work with the people that you have no knowledge of, with events that you have no history with, because I am there. I'm with them. Um, 
So, then we go on to the Ammonites. But as we do, we want to read verses 13 and 15. And after that parenthetical thought, Moses says, now rise up. If you understood me, if you plan to be obedient on this, rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea, remember last week we said don't Kadesh it, uh, the, the point of rebellion, until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. This is actually Moses' literary way of saying, and geographical way, that we're going to the promised land. That brook Zered was a boundary water saying to them, if you cross this, we are now ready to go. So he's telling the second generation of warriors and people, we're going to cross this brook, and the next stop is the Jordan River. It should have been an occasion of great joy for them, excitement to see what God was going to do. So then he comes to the command to Ammon, the other of the daughters of Lot, in verse 16. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, uh, the Lord said to me, Moses, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. Again, third time use of this verb. For I will not give you any type of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I had given it to the sons of Lot for their possession. So, it's the same thing. Edom, Moab, Ammon, same series of commands. God is with them. He provides and he protects. I doubt if those people had any idea how lucky they were that the Lord was with them. In another place, we read that Moses... Uh, actually sends emissaries to Esau, to Edom, excuse me, and says, hey, we want to buy food from you, and he refuses to let them, but something must have happened to soften his heart. And he recognizes that these two million people that are amassed on their border is not something to be messed with, but especially they probably recognize the hand of God with them. But every time God touches on one of these, uh, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the children of Israel are told to stay away, to just deal with them politely, to buy food, to buy water. Uh, do not contend is the thematic uh, thing that Moses is writing to them. We're not going to go to war with them. We're not told what the response was of the Israelites, if they felt they were being limited if they felt this was crazy, or if they just decided to be obedient, unlike their parents. We saw what happened. We just got done with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The last thing that we want to do is make God angry, right? So they don't. So then Moses, in verses 20 through 23, goes through another parenthetical thought. Uh, this one's a little more interesting. He says, it is also counted as a land of the Rephaim. The Rephaim formerly lived there, the Ammonites called them the Zamzumen. Do you like that name? The Zamzumen, a people great in many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. 
As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kephorim, who came from Kaptor, destroyed them and settled in their place. And so Moses just seems to think it's interesting and necessary to tell the children of Israel, every step of the way, God provided for these people. He provided land by letting them take over land that was already being owned by other people, including giant people, people that would have struck terror and fear into the hearts of most of us. And he says, no, I already gave them to these people. They were able to possess it because of me. So God provided and he protects them. Uh, he protected them against those original tribes, but he's also protecting them from the nation of Israel as they move through the wilderness and, and they get closer to their destiny of the Jordan River. Moses lets this generation know what God has done for these tribes. I think that's designed, if I can make a summary statement on this, that to be an encouragement to them. If God did this for these people who are actually the products of iniquity, right? Uh, Esau with his giving up of his birthright and of his uh, blessing and Lot's daughters from a horrific act of incest. Well, if God's going to take care of them, then certainly he's going to take care of us. I doubt if it came upon their heads that they, in fact, themselves were the products of iniquity, right? Their parents were the ones that were actually going to turn their back on God, give up their covenant identity with Jehovah, and go back to Egypt and become slaves again. Um, but that's the truth. So in throughout this chapter, we're seeing the subject of grace. Grace, grace, grace. And it seems kind of a weird thing to say as we're talking about warfare and people groups being wiped out and so forth. But God's grace is evident in every place. Despite what we may deserve, despite what we've inherited from others, despite what we've been taught by perhaps non-Christian family or non-Christian culture, when God decides to move in our life, it's grace. God takes care of us. He takes care of those that we love. Um, the Horites and the Zanzuman had turned their backs completely on God. Uh, the study of these people, these giants of the land who disappeared some generations before Israel had gotten there, is a fascinating study if you ever want to get into that. There, I just can recommend one man's book, Michael Heiser, uh, who wrote a book called The Unseen Realm, but also some commentary on the Book of Enoch, an apocalyptic book or apocryphal book. Uh, it's worth the read. It's absolutely fascinating. So now the children of Israel have been told where they can't go. That's what this first part of the chapter is all about. You may not go here, you can't go there. And the verb is being used again, you may not contend, you may not contend, you may not contend. Three times it is said that. And so we're ready now for the marching orders. We're just going to look in verse 24 and verse 25. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over to the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land, begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Same verb, but used in a different way. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So now we're into a different group of people. Sihon, the king, and he says, something has happened that's made God very, very angry at this man. And he's telling them, this time I want you to contend. 
you know, before the Edomites, the Moabites, the Amite, do not contend, do not contend, do not contend. We get to this part, and Moses is preaching this sermon, and I can just imagine the people of Israel amassed before him, his warriors, and he says, now I want you to contend. And I'm sure there was a clashing of shields and a hurrah as they thought about, okay, finally, we have a purpose. We know what we're supposed to do. Uh, we're going to defeat this king. It was either that or, are you crazy, Moses? Have you seen this man's kingdom? This is part of our report to you. This man has got a, a, a huge army, and he, he's a huge person. Well, Moses doesn't end it there. We'd have to read someplace else in the Torah to get the specifics of this battle, but I'm just going to read the part here, starting in verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kittimoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will only go by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. It's not so bad. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who lived in Ard did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. Uh, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give into your hand as he did this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us as he and all his people to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people, and we captured all his cities at that time, and devoted to destruction every city, every man, every woman, and every child. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands, only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, which was obedience, that is, to all the banks of the river, Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. So, I don't know what this king had done to the children of Israel, but they were on God's short list. This was not good. And the Israelites, even though they're on this side of the Jordan still, have been ordered to go into battle. This time you shall contend with him and to fight him. Two things I want to draw your attention to. One is that even though Moses sent a sort of a peace emissary to this king saying, hey, we don't mean you harm, just let us pass through. We're not going to do anything to you if you just play ball with us. And what does Sihon say? No. And why does he go against them? It says because God hardened his heart. Uh, God is the one who is saying, no, his time of judgment is upon him. He will not listen to Moses' entreaties, and he, they will suffer defeat. The second thing that I want you to notice is that they came out of their city onto the plains of Jahaz, which was a major mistake. Again, I have to believe that God was behind this. All of these Canaanites had built these huge cities, you know, huge to them at least, and they felt pretty safe in there. 
But for whatever reason, this king decided that the Israelites could not fight a pitched battle. So he came out and along with his army from the city, his main protection, and that was a military mistake. It, it wiped them out. Um, and then lastly, the term devoted to destruction in verse 34. We captured all of his cities at that time and devoted to destruction. We're going to touch on that in a second here, but let's just keep on moving. I'm going to read down through part of chapter 3 because we're going to kind of see the same formula again as we're reading this. The second king that has gotten on the bad side of the Lord. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people in his land into your hand, and you shall do unto him as you did unto Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city we did not take from him. Pretty much the same formula as we saw before. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan, all these were cities fortified with high walls and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we, here's that phrase, devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, every man, every woman, and every child. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon to the, that the Sidonians call Hermon, uh, Syrian, while the Amorites call it Semer. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salaka and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And then this little footnote, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. So we have again the same story. Two kings that were equally uh, angry, or uh, God was angry with them, and they were giant people. Uh, they were descendants of the Anakim. God sent in the Israelites, and soon it was over. Um, the part that makes this section, if you haven't picked up on that, kind of dark, like I kind of forewarned us this morning, is the fact that the term devoted to destruction is used twice here. And this will be a common term, especially as we read into the book of Joshua, when the southern and northern conquests occur, and the children of Israel are coming through to the Canaanites. Now, this is all part of God's plan. Uh, this is what God said was going to happen. Genesis 15, 16 says to Abraham, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to send you down into Egypt uh, for a time, and then it's going to be about 400 years before you come out of there. And he's saying that because I don't want you to go into the promised land at this time. Why? Because the time of the Amorites has not yet come. The Amorites as a people were wicked, and God is setting this situation up. Sihon and Og are two Amorite kings, and God feels very justified in sending his children in there to fight. 
besides the fact that Yahweh uses the theological language of inheritance to describe the Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites' claim to land, uh, these are terms that God shows his provision and his protection, which then he removes completely from these two kings. And in fact, he goes even further than that by hardening the heart of Sihon and also giving the people marching directions, telling them what to do, and devoting them to destruction. Every time we see that term in the Hebrew, the harem, to devote to destruction, it means that God expects nothing to be left of this people. He wants that land taken, he wants that culture wiped out, and he wants every living human being gone. It's a tough deal. So let's just take a second to consider this as we get through this section of Deuteronomy this morning. First of all, we're taught that Yahweh, God, is not only the Lord of Israel, but he exercises multinational sovereignty. Uh, it's facilitated by the God to whom the whole earth belongs. Uh, sometimes I think when we read scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we're tending to think that God's whole focus is on Israel. No one else is going to be held to the same ethical, moral, religious expectations as his people. And there is some truth to that in the sense that Israel is held to a higher level of expectation, but still God sees every nation of the world as his nations, and he will judge them according to his rules. The whole earth belongs to God, and we see that here. In the conquest of these Transjordan nations or kingdoms, uh, this is not the only time that Yahweh was behind these transitions in rulership. Later in Israel's history, we're going to see kind of the same thing happening. When God chooses to use the very pagan nations of Assyria and Babylon and Persia as tools of judgment and preservations, uh, tools of judgment, and then preserves evidence of God's sovereignty over all these nations. Secondly, Israel's covenantal relationship with God uh, it's not only her possession of the land that distinguished Israel from all these other nations of the world, the reality does not diminish the significance of God's allocating the land of promise to Israel or its role in as yet future events. Uh, the primary focus here is where it needs to be, on Israel's relationship with God. The reason Israel gets this land, in other words, is because they are in relationship with God himself. He owns the world and it's his decision for them to come into this land. Even now, into the land of Sihon and Og. I want you to go through there and take it. There's no explanation. There's no rationale. He doesn't really go into great depth of, uh, of something that would make the people feel better. Same way that he, like, picking Abraham to be the head of his chosen people. He doesn't really let us know his rationale in that either. He's just God, right? Since this land was part of Israel's relationship with Yahweh, and since his promised victory over Israel's enemy would result from that relationship, Israel must and is expected to live in obedience to God. If they commit covenantal treachery, God can and will evict them from this uh, divine allotment of land, right? Just as he evicted these guys. Uh, so the same thing might happen to them. So what do we do with this haram? 
How do we understand this? Uh, to be honest, uh, if you do much work in apologetics, trying to do a defense of the faith with people, uh, this comes up, usually it's in the top two or three reasons why people object to Christianity. Uh, it's not that they've done a thorough study of the Old Testament to get to that, it's just that they've heard this. The ban, as it's sometimes called, uh, the lack of ability for God to allow people to repent, to say that we're sorry. Can there be a third, fourth, fifth, six hundredth chance for us to avoid God's judgment? He tells his children, his Israelites, to wipe them out. That doesn't sound like the God that we read about in the New Testament, does it? Uh, it doesn't sound like uh, the, the sermons that Jesus would preach. And yet we, as Christians, who accept the revelation of the Word as being from God, we somehow have to balance these two different pictures of who God is in the Old Testament and who God seems to be through His Son in the Incarnation in the New Testament. How do those fit together? How in the world can we make this understandable to those who don't necessarily share our beliefs? I, I searched quite a bit this last week, not finding a whole lot of things that people have written on this. Most people just ignore it, but it does come up. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who um, just choose to reject a belief system in uh, Judeo-Christian ethics because of the harem, the ban. So we're going to take a stab at it today, okay? Uh, I'm going to call it a theology of war, devoted to destruction. So what would justify Israel and their God in wiping out whole cultures? In our wokeness, in our uh, understanding of culture today, this may be the highest offense that anybody could ever do to another people. Uh, and it's a good reason for many not to even believe in God. This, of course, is often cited today as one of those reasons. Uh, in other words, who does God think he is wiping out these people? Well, let's take a look at who Jehovah actually is and why he does these things. First of all, let's just look uniquely at Israel's war commands. First of all, as the divine commander-in-chief, uh, Israel is a theocracy. That means that they don't have a king, they don't have rulers, they have a god period. And that God rules them. He is the one who identifies their military target. Uh, he chose to exclude this nation and this nation and this nation. And then he zeroes in on the Amorite kings and their people in the Transjordan, probably because they stood in the way of his people's reclaiming of the land, but also because of their sin. Only God knows what his relationship with these people had been at one time, right? Secondly, Yahweh initiates the war, telling the Israelites the timing of when to attack them, as I mentioned already, Genesis 15, 16. God had given them 400 years. Think of it this way. Uh, they had a touch of the Lord when Abraham lived in this promised land at one time. Uh, he said that he worshiped God. There was the interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek, and Abraham bore faithful testimony to the Lord. The Amorites had to be aware of this and understand this. Did they choose in this time period to repent of their idol worship and to follow God? It doesn't seem like they did. 
But he says their time will come in 400 years. You take 400 years, you have the 40 years because of the Israelis' rebellion. They've had 440 years to repent of their actions. Yahweh determines the strategy of the war, uh, telling Israel to cross the Jordan, possess the land, and contend, there's that verb again, with them in battle. They capture cities, they annihilate the people, and so forth. These are all in result directly of what God is saying. God himself accompanies Israelites into battle. They're not just doing this because they want to or because they think this is the right thing to do. They're not violating human ethics, human law. They're being obedient to Jehovah commands, to Jehovah ethics. Yahweh also engaged in psychological warfare, right? Because we see that at the end of uh, that section uh, on the marching orders when he says he put the fear of the Israelites into the people that they were going to come to. I want to reread this. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. We know this is true because when the Israelites finally get to Jericho uh, and they interact with Rahab, Rahab says, we've heard of you. Everybody's heard of you. And we tremble knowing that you were coming. And we didn't know what to do about it, right? Uh, that fear went in front of everyone, making the warfare, I imagine, somewhat easier. So where does God get off destroying everyone? Why couldn't he have just let them win, beat them in a battle, uh, subjugate the people, uh, move them off the land, uh, take over their cities? Why did it have to be destruction of everyone there? Well, if we can put some thoughts together, it might say this. First of all, the most obvious one. God is creator of all things and all human beings, right? He's sovereign over all. God could basically do anything he wants. Uh, I don't think there's any close analogy that we can make in this relationship. God's creator, everyone else is created. Uh, you can think, well, he's the dad and we're the children, but still we wouldn't think any father that would kill his children is the thing to do. There's something unique in the fact that he's the creator <clears throat> and we are the created. God can do whatever he wants. He was Israel's commander-in-chief. He accounts to no one for his actions or his commands. And by the definition, if he does it, it is right. And that might be just a step of faith that we have to take. If he decides to command the Israelites to eliminate the Canaanites, well, he's perfectly within his rights to do so. Uh, I think the only people that this answer will satisfy are hardcore Calvinists, but nevertheless, it's there before you. Secondly, the ways of God are a mystery. If we look at Isaiah chapter 55, it's kind of a, you know, a punt on this point, but it says, my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. We probably are never going to grasp why God felt it was necessary to totally eliminate every person. We can only guess. He never gives us the rationale for this. Sort of like the end of the book of Job. For some reason, we don't have a whole lot of problem as we read through the flood. We teach the flood story in Sunday school to little children, uh, but the horrors of that event, of the ark having the door shut as the rain begins to pour down, and the people of the world, all of them, but Noah's family, are eliminated. 
they're killed. We don't have a problem with that, but we have a problem with this. Uh, when we look at the book of Job, and Job's children are having a feast under the house of uh, the roof of one of the children, the roof collapses, right, and kills all of his children. And well, yeah, Dave, but at the end of the book, uh, it says that Job got even more children than he had before. Have you ever lost a child? You think that really satisfied Job and his wife? Oh, well, God gave us more children. I guess that's the way to go. No, it's painful. It's painful. And as you read through the book of Job and you get to the end and Job is so angry, he's like, God, if you were here, I would demand an answer from you. And God presents himself, but he doesn't give any answers. He just says, basically, I am God and you're not. According to the biblical picture of the Canaanites, these people, another reason for the harem, for the devoted to destruction, were extremely wicked. Their annihilation represented God's judgment on their sin. The destruction of the Canaanites was neither the first nor the last time God was going to do this. With the Canaanite, as well as others in history, God uses human beings rather than the natural disaster such as the flood. And maybe that's what causes us to take notice of this. Um, we notice in Deuteronomy, we're going to come across this a little bit later in another one of Moses' sermons, chapter 18, there is a little bit of understanding of why God decided that they had to be completely eradicated, uh, starting in verse 9, where it says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Forever who does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. There's some part of the rationale why God is doing this. These people were deep into sin. There's several things that we know just from archaeology of what the Canaanites are into. We look at Sodom, and besides their obvious sins, uh, the Sodomites rejoiced in doing wickedness. Now, they didn't think of it as wickedness, but it was. It went against God's law, right? Uh, they would allow strangers to come into town, and according to the ancient Near Eastern Honor Code, they would be given provisions and so forth. But then later, they would be beaten and those provisions taken away from them and allowed to starve in the city square, right? And they rejoiced in that. They thought that was great. And other uh, evidences that we have is um, we find little jars with newborn babies in them put into the walls of the houses of some Canaanite cultures. Uh, this was a way of having good luck from their gods upon this house was to kill their own child and put him in the wall. Uh, the horrible thing about this is we even see the Israelites doing this. In a place called Gehenna, we have found many, many jars with infants inside of them. 
the Israelites were imitating the cultures that they were never supposed to imitate. We see the fact that they would uh, worship their gods, such as Molech. We see Solomon imitating this one, but there was a hollow bronze effigy of a god with his hands outstretched, and it would be raked up to a flaming hot fire until that bronze was just almost glowing red. And the couple was told that they had to put their newborn child in that god's hands. And then when the blessing had been given, the hands would go up, the baby would roll into the fire. The parents were not allowed to show grief. The mother was expected to dance and to show joy. That's how wicked this generation is. And I'm not even going to stop on the sexual sin that was so prevalent amongst this generation. Just know that as you read through Leviticus 18 through 20, and you see God commanding the Israelites, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do this. The reason that Moses is listing this is because this is what the Canaanite tribes were doing. It was not good. One of my professors, I think I mentioned this before, he got to interpret some Canaanite texts when he was at the university, and he just told us in class how absolutely horrific it was. He would stay up late at night uh, doing his translations and doing some uh, work on this, and he said the sense of evil that came over him as he was doing these translations. I mean, it's one thing to read that they're doing all these horrible things, you know, worshiping Chamash and Away and so forth, all these gods. But I don't think we get from the pages of Scripture how absolutely evil these cultures were. They were, in a sense, very much possessed. And God, I think, gave them plenty of opportunities to repent. He gave them plenty of opportunities to get their act together and they chose to stay in the situation they were in. And you get the harem. Uh, God never intends, by the way, the Israelites to use this policy of devoted to destruction to all the nations, right? Uh, in Deuteronomy 7.1, he expressly identifies the target people. They weren't to use this against the Arameans or the Edomites or the Egyptians or anyone else. Unfortunately, throughout church history, some Christians at different times have brought out this concept of devoted to destruction and have used it, such as in the Crusades against Jews and Muslims. It was used sometimes even in North America as we took over uh, whole Indian tribes. Wrongly used. This was never God's policy to say that this is just a blanket statement. Anytime you come across a pagan nation, do this. This was specifically limited to the people of Canaan and only those tribes that he identifies. The Canaanites suffered a faith that ultimately lead, that all sinners will eventually face. And we don't like to think of that either. But the judgment of God, the difference between them and other lost people is that they, the people in Canaan, they met their doom early. We're going to wait and see what happens at the judgment seat of the Lord on this side of the cross, right? For the most part. But if we look at the book of Revelation, what do we see? It's really devoted to destruction. It's really the harem. We see it over and over again. Certain percentage of the world's population is killed. Certain population of the world is killed. Certain population, you know, the blood is up to the horse's bridles in the valley of Armageddon. If we take that literally, if we understand this to be a recounting of Christ's return, those who do not know Jesus 
are going to be subject to the same fate that we see here in Deuteronomy 2. God reserves the right to doing this. Another thing that we should understand is that in ancient Near East culture, people identified with their community much more than we do in the West today. So for them, it was not uh, strange. They wouldn't have objected to the fact that the general population would suffer the same fate as their king. Children would share the same fate as their parents. That was just the way that it was. God's elimination of the Canaanites was a necessary step in the history of salvation in order for Israel to achieve the goals that God had established for them, that they might declare the world to his glory and grace, right? Um, And just lastly say this, God doesn't really play favorites. If God is really the God of all nations around the world, he doesn't play favorites. He chose his people. But according to what we see in the Old Testament later, basically Israel suffers the same fate as they inflicted upon the Canaanites as they entered the land, right? It doesn't take much reading through Jeremiah to realize how horrific the conquest of Babylon was upon Jerusalem. It was a horrible thing. And only those people that were taken and sent away, like Daniel, to live in uh, Babylon, did they escape the fate that we see here. So even though this devoted destruction takes, shows up for the first time in these, this passage, it really should not be an occasion for anyone to look at this and say, well, I, I, I can't believe in a God that would allow this to happen. God is God. He's the judge of this world. He judges all nations and he judges all people. Do you think that our nation will escape that judgment? Do you think that we somehow stand in a place that's unique in all of world history, that our actions will not be held accountable to us? I think we're going to have a rude awakening at some point, right? So what can we do about that? Well, as I close this morning, I just want to say this to you. Thinking of nations is too big for us to grasp. We can't really do a whole lot about what our nation is thinking. We're just not in that context. But we can do something about our community. We can do some things about those that we love and we care for. So this morning, when you leave here, my hope is that we can close the loop on this sermon by just thinking about who's one person that you care about, that you don't want to see go through this. Do you love them? Do you love your family member? Do you love your neighbor? You know, part of that confession that Mark read this morning with us was that, God, please forgive us for not loving our neighbor. And I think the real test of that love, and I think that's what Jesus says when he, when he ha- answers the lawyer and he says, love your neighbor as yourself, is that we love them enough to share our faith with them so that they will not suffer the judgment that all people who oppose God will face. God is not gone. Remember, that was 400 years from the time of Abraham's covenant, 440 actually, until the Israelites came into that land. All that time, Canaanites, the Amorites, had time to repent. If that was today, we're talking back into the 1600s. 
you know, if our nation is going to be judged like that. We weren't even a nation then at that time. So how long does God's hand of patience, long-suffering, enduring last? I don't know. The last statistic I heard is that over 6 million babies have been aborted. And we say, oh, well, these Canaanites, they're so wicked, they're so evil. There's nothing like that in our culture. I don't even think it takes something like that. I think it just takes ignoring God. I think it's the idea that we can set up our own God. That is something to think about. Who are you going to go home today and pray about and engage and take them on and say, hey, I care so much about you. I don't want you to suffer this fate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, It is a dark passage. It's hard to read these things. But Father, we trust you. You are sovereign God. Why you judge some nations so harshly and not others, we trust you for the rightness of that. But Lord, we know that all peoples, all nations will be judged by you eventually. Father, as your church, we are a nation within the nation. And yet we don't want to suffer the same fate as the Israelites. We want to be pure before you. We want to be righteous. Father, there are so many things in our lives that get in the way of us walking in righteousness, greed, evil, hatred, unjustness. Father, things that we just allow to exist and we don't deal with them. And they get in the way of our testimony. They perhaps have made us a little bit of reticent to go and tell other people our witness about our faith in you. Father, may we do quick work with you. May we ask forgiveness. May we repent as individuals, as a church, as Christians. And may we have a word of strength, a word of opportunity for those that we love and those that we come across. Oh God, guide us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.